The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Very good morning, everybody. President Biden prepares to unveil his first budget with the U.S. leader reportedly set to ask Congress for as much as $6 trillion in a bid to sustain the recovery. The bottom line is this. The Biden economic plan is working. We had record job creation. We're seeing record economic growth. We're creating a new paradigm. Dallas Fed President Robert Kaplan tells CNBC signs of imbalances in the housing and labor markets mean the U.S. central bank should start to think about tapering. I think it would be wise to start uh, talking about uh, moderating some of these asset purchases that we put in place during the crisis. Oil prices nudge higher on the back of that strong U.S. economic data with the Fed's preferred gauge of inflation due later today and ahead of an OPEC Plus meeting next week. U.S. lawmakers remain poles apart as Republicans come back with an infrastructure bill counteroffer, but at $928 billion, it's only a little over half of what President Biden's looking for. So far, this administration has recommended, recommended we spend $7 trillion additional dollars this year that would be more than we spent in adjusted inflation dollars to win World War II. So they have huge uh, spending desire. And JD Logistics delivers the goods on its market debut with the stock rising double digits in Hong Kong after pricing at the lower end of the range to raise $3.2 billion. Welcome to the program, everybody. Very good morning. Uh, President Biden will unveil his 2022 budget request later today, with the U.S. leader set to seek as much as $6 trillion in funding. According to a CNBC source, $300 billion is earmarked for next year, while around $5 trillion will be spent over the next decade. President Biden expects the new spending to be covered by $3.6 trillion in additional revenues, resulting in a deficit of $1.4 trillion. Well, speaking in Cleveland, Biden hailed the economic recovery so far. Ten months ago, we were in trouble. When I was sworn in, there were 10 million fewer jobs in America and a lot here in Ohio. But in my first three months in office, the economy has added back 500,000 jobs per month. In the meantime, Dallas Fed President Robert Kaplan has told CNBC the FOMC should start considering to taper its asset purchases, citing excesses in the real estate market. I think it would be wise to start uh, talking about uh, moderating some of these asset purchases that we put in place during the crisis. But I think uh, maybe uh, the efficacy of these versus the side effects. I think that balance is changing as we're emerging from the crisis and making progress. 
in the next bit of sound from Kaplan, we've got the words paradigm shift. So I just want to just confirm what I thought paradigm shift meant. It's an important change that happens when the usual way of thinking or doing something is replaced by a new and different way. Is that what's happened? I don't know. A lot of people still going about business as usual. Anyway, Kaplan said that the recovery has caused some fundamentals to change, including the aforementioned paradigm shift. Coming out of this pandemic, I think we've got some paradigm shifts. And it's not surprising that it's a challenge to understand these shifts. And as we do that, uh, there's no textbook for this. You don't want to be so preemptive that you choke off the recovery. But on the other hand, you don't want to be so reactive that you're late and you're behind the curve. Well, the U.S. labor market continued its steady improvement last week with just 406,000 people signing up for unemployment benefits. The reading is a pandemic era low and comes as demand rises throughout the economy amid a, yeah, an easing in restrictions. Uh, Kaylin Birch joins us, global economist for the EIU or the Econ- Economist Intelligence Unit. Kaylin, good to see you this morning. Look, let, let's just go in on this big budget headline number here because this is um, a very large increase in federal commitments. Um, are they going to be able to push this through or are the Republicans uh, with some support from uh, rogue Democrats going to be able to block it? I mean, I think we can take the recent talk over the infrastructure bill as a, a key example. It's not a very good one, um, I think, for the administration's point of view. We've seen proposals put out around infrastructure spending. If there's anything that bipartisan support in Congress. It's the idea of spending on an infrastructure. Kaylin, I'm sorry. We've got an audio problem with you. We're going to have another go at reconnecting and see if we can figure that out. But at the moment, it sounds like you're underwater, which is not great for the audience. Uh, While we uh, dial back in and see if we can get Kaylin ready, why don't we have a look at how the market's performed overnight? Yeah, plenty of action to talk you through if we take a look at uh, how the market has traded even over the course of this week. There's a feeling that some investors, some quarters of the market are actually more comfortable with this inflation outlook. We've had so much messaging from the Fed and a lot of data points now. And some investors are very much leaning into that thinking from the Fed that pricing pressures are transitory, which is why you see an appetite for stocks. That said, I still think there's a, another area of the market that is mindful and watchful about the, the pace that we're still witnessing on this infrastructure spending and some of the pent-up demand story wages, uh, the increases that we're seeing there. And they're not, co- they're not comfortable at this point and you are still seeing some of that volatility and asset prices, namely around technology yesterday. You did see a little bit of pressure up on the yield, which then triggered just a bit of softness in the Nasdaq. But, you know, if you look at the course of trade over this week, the Nasdaq has been a decent performer, near on 2% pop you've seen in those technology names, which is a nod to that comfort level for some areas of the market around this inflation outlook. But uh, for a day yesterday, you've had the Dow reclaiming a little bit of territory, four tenths of a percent in the green. And what you've witnessed over the course of the trading week, about three quarters of one percent in terms of gains for the Dow in contrast to the near two percent for technology. So you can see where some of those purchases this week have been tilted to on the U.S. markets. But it does set the scene for later today as we talk about the key inflation gauge, the PCE deflator that the market is waiting out for. This is also a gauge that the central bank takes into consideration, a little bit less volatile in many ways from the CPI. So uh, just what we're going to get from this reading could be key for markets and that comfort level as we talk about how investors feel about pricing pressures. Let's take a look at what we've got on the yield side. 
Uh, the yield at 1.61%. Uh, we've risen a little bit off that 1.57 mark, so a couple of basis points to the upside, but not in the, the higher ranges that we'd witnessed earlier this year. Uh, the uh, concerns around inflation, what we're witnessing on the back of uh, a fall in jobless benefits, that was one of the big data points yesterday. The market also eyeing GDP up 6.4% in an annual rate in the first quarter. These were triggers for the yield to rise, but also uh, that was supported for the oil markets. And you can take a look at uh, what WTI and Brent is doing this morning. You can see their firmer trades up close to half a percent on both of those energy trades. And Asian markets, uh, they will be waiting it out for this data point later on today too, uh, very late Asia time. But you can see there are gains on these markets, particularly for Japan. That's a very strong pop of more than 600 odd points or 2.2%. And Australia chasing 1.3%. Uh, that's exceeding the gains for Hong Kong and China at this stage. The opening calls, uh, let's take a look at European markets. We keep hearing more and more calls for investors to consider European equities at this point in the cycle. And you've seen over the course of the month, the gains roughly of 2% on the broader benchmark, more in other areas, particularly on the Italian stock market for the month, currently up about 3.8%. And you can see this morning, we're in lockstep. We are chasing a green arrows before the start. US futures will have some bearing, of course, later on today. And you can see uh, that lead we are getting from Wall Street is firmer. The Dow to the Nasdaq, all perched high, but uh, pretty strong signals when you look at that Dow number. Excellent. Uh, well, thanks for bearing with us. Let's have another go at this. Kaylin Birch is with us, Global Economist at the Economist Intelligence Unit. Just to repeat the question, Kaylin, is this likely to get past Congress, um, given that even uh, moderate uh, senators like Mr Manchin are unlikely to vote for it? Yes, thanks. And sorry to put you all through that. Um, I think what we can take from the recent infrastructure talks is a really helpful example. Um, we've seen talks going on for the last few weeks between the White House, Democrats and Republicans in Congress to try to get an infrastructure plan out of Biden's build back better agenda. Now, if there's anything in Congress that gets bipartisan support, it's the idea of spending on infrastructure. Um, the last big bill we had was back in 2015, and we've had two attempts since then. So there's no kind of lack of consensus there. But at the same time, Democrats and Republicans just can't really seem to get on the same page in terms of what they think infrastructure really means and how much needs to be spent and how to finance those plans. So I think we have a very, very narrow scope for consensus spending, and it's going to look quite different from that $6 trillion figure that Biden has proposed. So no matter what happens, I think we'll see a significant narrowing down of that spending. That's, that's very interesting. Uh, so this, this represents something like an opening gambit as far as the Republicans are concerned. But uh, on this kind of glide path of spending, we would see in just a few years, I think, the um, uh, federal debt exceeding where we were at the peak of the Second World War. Um, even if they manage to uh, reduce, if the um, Republicans manage to push this number down, are we still ultimately looking at a U.S. economy that's on a, a path to something in excess or, or well in excess of 100 percent of debt to GDP? Yes, definitely. I think we're on that trend now. We saw um, the debt-to-GDP ratio nudge just above 100%, which, of course, is a you know symbolically worrying threshold <laughs> in 2020, not kind of put down that change at all. But I think, interestingly, if you look not at the debt-to-GDP ratio, which is traditionally what we've looked at as the sign of a healthy economy and a strong financial position, but instead, if you look at the debt servicing to GDP ratio, so how much of the interest payments cost every year, um, actually, that 
interest payment ratio is falling. And it was at about 1.6 prior to the crisis. And it's now hovering around 1.2, 1.3% by our projections for at least the next couple of years. And that just shows that interest rates are at rock bottom levels and they're likely to stay there per the Fed's guidance for at least the next couple of years. So debt is rising, yes, but it's a lot more affordable than it was in the past. So it puts a lot less pressure actually on the public finances, at least let's say in the next five years. Kaylin, I'm I'm a lot older than you, um, and and that's either a good thing or a bad thing, but I remember the 70s as well. And and if they let this genie out of the bottle and basically we do get some form of inflation, then those wonderful figures you mentioned about debt servicing costs, well, it's going to skyrocket as well. So I I don't know if that's the best measure that we should be using to judge whether we have a sustainable long-term economy as well. Well, I think it all comes down, and rightly so, to this question around inflation. How fast does it rise? Um, and where is it coming from? Is it coming from kind of one-off factors or is it a sustained rise where we're saying housing costs, transport costs and education costs, all the kind of bedrock items actually starting to rise as well? Um, and this is the million dollar question or actually trillion dollar question that all U.S. economists are asking themselves. Um, and we have different kind of previous uh, presidential lead scholars who have different views on the idea. But at the moment, we're not seeing a lot of the sustained inflationary rise. It's a lot of kind of one-off factors that for the moment seem to be linked to this initial recovery from the crisis. But I would say the biggest risk the forecast is, of course, that inflation heads on on a different trajectory. And it's going to be the main thing that we see the Fed trying to grappling with over the course of the next 12 months. Uh, Caitlin, do we need a grown-up, non-partisan conversation about stimulus checks? Um, There seems to be all kinds of data pointing to the fact that people are not getting back into the workforce and creating shortages uh, because they feel they don't need to at the moment as well. Again, I'm no Republican, I'm no Democrat, but, but is there part of the Biden initiatives and stimulus so far that is preventing jobs coming back into or people going back on to, into the workforce and taking the jobs that are available uh, and as such it, it potentially a valid criticism from some republican camps Yes, and I think we'll see a lot of that over the course of the next few months. So we're pricing in that we'll have a couple of months, probably even more, in terms of labor market shortages. And it's going to be partially the fact that we saw more resilience in household income. So they didn't have the same pressures uh, on earnings or savings for a lot of particularly middle-income households during the crisis. Part of that was the stimulus checks, and part of it was expanded unemployment benefits. Um, There are a couple of other factors, though, to mention that might be holding people back from coming back into the workforce. One is health concerns that are persistent, and we expect those to start to be worked out by the time we get to about the early fall as vaccination rates start to rise and we kind of adjust to this new normal. And then the second is a lot of people who may have had to drop out of the workforce to care for children or family members and who are unable to access care in those coming months that are now kind of at home, unable to rejoin. Um, But I think uh, by and large, it's definitely a concern. And I think one amidst other factors are going to hold people back from joining the labor force. And so I'd say around September, when I see that being kind of the turning point by and large. But look at the gig economy. If that's just one example, and of course, there's no perfect mismatch between workers in one sector of the economy and people looking to hire in construction or bioengineering. But there are still millions of Americans working gig or part-time work who would like a full-time job. So I think we're seeing a lot of factors playing into this very uncomfortable readjustment period.
Kaylin, can I talk about the medium to longer term here? When we talk about an infrastructure spending bill, it's not an immediate input to the economy, not an immediate boost. It typically takes much longer for it to translate. And if we look at some of the economic forecasts now, once we get through all these wild numbers on the back of the pandemic, we start to settle down into forecast ranges of just under 2% by 2023 and 2024. What would a $6 trillion stimulus bill that is focused on infrastructure do to some of those longer term forecasts? I think we could expect to see a little bit more of a bump. Now, of course, in terms of kind of pushing annual growth to 3% or something that, you know, again, pre-pandemic, pre-weird numbers would have felt really outrageous for the U.S., uh, that's not really part of our forecast. We also expect GDP to come back to a slightly more sustainable range of around 2% over the long term. Um, but again, I would just say that for the U.S., given the size of the economy, the developed state of the economy, demographic trends, even 2% growth or something slightly above it is really quite positive. It does actually require some investment to keep those productive sectors of the economy going. And I think um, it's also important to note from the Biden administration's plans, again, it's still some question about what the bill looks like ultimately when it passes. We are factoring in a modest bump to growth over the medium to long term uh, and a bigger one in kind of, let's say, the next three years because we expect it to be negotiated down, actually, to a much more palatable medium ground that, you know, moderate Democrats can get on board with. Um, the idea of a much bigger package could actually boost growth a bit more. We just don't think it's realistic um, that it could ever get through Congress, really. Kaylin, but if we talk logically about the implications for inflation, because this is one of the sticking points potentially for the Republicans, that if you keep on piling money into the economy, you are going to trigger inflation. Now, we have these unusual patterns on the back of the pandemic, all this pent-up demand, supply bottlenecks. But if you start having a package at the same time when other economies are also spending up on infrastructure, don't you just continue those bottlenecks for much, much longer and also drive up those raw material prices for an extended period of time, which does, in fact, translate to inflation? Yeah, it all depends on how the commodity market is able to react. But certainly we've seen supply shortages start to merge of various commodities. I'm thinking especially about um precious metals like palladium and platinum, which are actually really critical to the automotive sector. So if we were to see plans to build up the electric vehicle and kind of high-tech manufacturing in the U.S., we could see strains emerging there. We've seen problems with steel and iron ore. A lot of that's been driven by fast growth and stockpiling by China. So yes, absolutely. A couple of years of big manufacturing and construction-led growth would exacerbate problems. So it would really kind of create some commodity-led price pressures there. Would it be enough to push inflation into an unsustainable trend? I'm not convinced of that yet. But, of course, it definitely would be a concern. And, again, is now a very new sort of challenge that a very old sort of institution, like the Fed, is trying to find its way through. Kaylin, excellent. Thank you very much indeed for kicking off our coverage of the show and talking about the all-important economic issues in the States. Kaylin Birch, Global Economist at the EIU, Economist Intelligence Unit. I'm pretty sure that Kaylin said the last time we had a, an infrastructure bill was 2015. Hang on a second, but I thought there was a place called Ashburn, Virginia, where in 2016 on the campaign trail, Mr Trump promised over a trillion dollars. 
That never happened, did it? Never mind. Uh, U.S. Senate Republicans have now proposed a scaled-back version of President Biden's $1.7 trillion infrastructure spending plan. The $928 billion package includes funds to repair roads and bridges. We've heard that before, haven't we? Uh, along with almost $100 billion for the country's public transit system. Uh, Biden has set an unofficial deadline for a deal uh, for the end of the month. Now, speaking to CNBC, the Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell vowed to work with the White House to reach an agreement. We'd like to get an outcome on a significant infrastructure package. And what we've already recommended on a bipartisan basis out of one of the Senate committees just this week is more than we've ever done over a multi-year uh, infrastructure bill. So we're open to spending some more. What we're not open to is going back and reopening the 2017 tax bill. Uh, Mitch McConnell. Well, coming up on the program, JD Logistics shares jump on their Hong Kong debut, delivering a boost to the city's IPO market after China's anti-monopoly crackdown on the tech sector. Uh, we'll talk some more about this when we come back. And for more on President Biden's spending plans, check out the Sportbox podcast. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. Welcome back, everybody. The U.S. has urged the World Health Organization to begin a second investigation into the origins of COVID-19. President Biden says intelligence agencies are considering several different theories, including a laboratory leak in Wuhan, a WHO probe earlier this year found the disease most likely spread from animals to humans, adding the lab theory was, quote, extremely unlikely. But I think the investigation also acknowledged that some information in the or on the origins from the Chinese side had been withheld. Uh, the US Senate edged closer to a final vote on a sweeping new bill aiming to strengthen the country's tech sector against Chinese competition. The plan also includes... $54 billion in fresh spending to help boost production of semiconductors and telecoms equipment. The proposal uh, requires approval from both the Senate and the House before it's signed by President Biden. Shares in JD Logistics have surged in their Hong Kong debut after the Chinese delivery business was spun off from the e-commerce giant JD.com. The IPO is the second largest in the city this year and the third to raise more than a billion dollars. Let's get to Arjun, who joins us live now from Beijing. Um, and Arjun, JD.com is in an interesting place at the moment. Obviously, this spin-off creates uh, some value, but there are those uh, who are looking at the business and arguing that more needs to be done at this stage to find another gear. 
Yeah, you're absolutely right, Jeff. As you know, the e-commerce the, the e market in uh, China is cutthroat. There's a, a lot of price competition. There's a lot of these companies, JD, Pinduoduo, Alibaba, and the rest trying to go after new segments of the market in lower tier cities. And actually, that's where this logistic business comes in. And I think why there is a bit of excitement in the market today on the IPO, jumping sort of over 10%, uh, because uh, where JD has tried to differentiate over the years from some of its rivals is on the logistics business, investing in areas like Net day as well as same day delivery and what JD Logistics argues is, is that it's different from the competition in that it's investing in a lot of automation technologies to boost efficiency, speed, cut costs, etc. Uh, and what you're seeing really is uh, a strong growth in the business and I do want to dig into that as well because while it's seeing strong growth there are a number of risk factors there as well. Firstly in terms of revenue the company bought in uh, about uh, um, 73.4 billion yuan in revenue in 2020, up about 47% year on year. However, that net loss figure for 2020 was 4 billion yuan, much, much wider than 2019. And that's expected to significantly increase this year as well. And so that's a, a real concern at this point. The other uh, point here is, over 50% of JD Logistics revenues comes from JD Group uh, rather than third parties. Now that is narrower than what we've seen in previous years, but it's still a large chunk of revenue. And as I mentioned, that net loss continues uh, to widen as competition, not just with other e-commerce players like Alibaba, but also the likes of uh, some of the, the specialist logistics players like SF and ZTO in the market. Anyways, uh, Yu Roy, the uh, CEO of JD Logistics, was speaking earlier to reporters at a press conference and addressed some of these concerns. Let's just listen in to what he had to say. As more income is coming from external companies, JD Logistics is gradually transforming to serve more external customers. Thus, our future income coming from external sites will keep growing. As you may see, we have some losses in the past. That is the time we invest more to develop. In the whole field, JD Logistics witnessed relatively fast growth, and we are expanding our business in a rapid way. As our operation keeps improving in the future, JD Logistics will follow a pretty healthy direction and improve our financial data. Three key points to take away from that. Firstly, they're expecting third-party revenue to increase, means JD Group's percentage of revenue will eventually decrease. Secondly, they're expecting financial health to improve. And thirdly, they're clearly in investment mode, as I mentioned, not just the e-commerce market, but the logistics market is cutthroat here in China. The question is, of course, you're seeing the big pop on day one is how long investors will stomach the losses, is stomach this investment mode before they start asking questions around profitability. Guys, back to you. That's terrific. Have you had had a photo yet with the big gong um, as I look behind no, you, you look at they're lining up there Arjun behind you to get a picture with the big gong oh oh this is nothing you should have seen the the, the rush at lunchtime here this room was absolutely packed uh, there's no chance but yeah I think everyone's going back to work now so yeah try and get my there was actually a robotic arm there earlier that rang the gong at the market open 930 local time so uh, that was sort of JD logistics showing off their push towards more automation. But yeah, now there's just humans there and hopefully yeah, I'll get myself a picture. That'd be great. Well, what, what the audience can't see, of course, is the bigger queue that's waiting to take a picture of the famous CNBC tech reporter. <laughs> that's, that's not here. Uh, most people had a look and just walked off, actually, Jeff, I'll be honest with you. Oh, come on. Uh, Arjun, terrific. Nice to see you. We'll catch up with you a little bit later on in the programme. I love how he's seeking gong perfection, right. trying to get the perfect shot with nobody in, in sight.
Yes. Most of us would just stand there and snap one, people walking in and out of the shop. But Arjun is going for the insta magic. Yeah, no, I think he um, he did well, did very well there. But um, I, I love uh, I love the big gong. That's terrific, isn't it? I have gong envy this morning. <laughs> do you? I, I like do. a good dragon to, that goes with the gong would, when they do these launches. Terrific in my living room, I think. <laughs> um, next to the flying ducks on the the flying geese on the wall. Right. Yeah. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.